Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, and before we start this episode, I would like to make a brief announcement. We have chased meaning away, in its place grows the tower, always expanding and leaving blissfully fulfilled employees in its wake. I am a doctor who specialises in souls, a potent advertising slogan leaves ripples in the world of the spirit. Love is remembered, maybe S was responsible for everything, but who else do I have? Blending Franz Kafka, Mikhail Bulgakov, Jacques Ellul, and Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Tower is a search for meaning in a world no longer organised for humans. So goes the blurb for my upcoming novel, Tower, to be released in November 2023 and available on my website, www.jackbc.me, that is, www.jackbc.me. Thank you. Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, a Spanish Civil War reenactment enthusiasts group kept small by our insistence on only using live ammunition. This week's episode is on Mine Were of Trouble by Peter Kemp, first published in 1957. It details Kemp's experiences as an Englishman who, in 1936, shortly after finishing his studies at Cambridge, went to fight for the Nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. So, if you're ready to hear all about the world's most exciting post-university celebration, then listen on. Enjoy. Shout out to Corn on the on our Discord server, Dionysus Appreciator, for recommending this book. This was a book I liked. This was a very, very disturbing experience for the book club from hell. I'm always unsettled when I enjoy reading one of the books that we've assigned ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, especially disturbed when it comes from a from a listener. Yeah, <laughs> like wow, <laughs> it's not all just furries. This book was particularly alarming because it was it was well written. It didn't go on for too long. It was engaging. Yeah, very very unsettling. This is this is the most disturbing type of book that we read. The book that's <laughs> <laughs> that's actually good. <laughs> And it was uh, requested in response to our um, episode on a was the guy who did the World War Two book. Sorry, I'm just completely oh, Ernst Junger. right now. Storm of Steel. <laughs> yeah, Ernst Junger. Yeah, Storm of Steel. Yeah, so we covered Storm of Steel, and Corn wanted us to also cover Mine Were of Troubles, and yeah, by Peter Kemp. It was a good suggestion. Yeah, by Peter Kemp. First published in 1957. Which is the account of uh, a uh, a young British man who, having just recently finished his undergraduate studies at the University of Cambridge, um, decides to join the Nationalist Coalition during the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. It's a very interesting story. We won't go through a blow-by-blow because blow it'll be kind of boring, but mm-hmm. we're going to talk about it. A bit, and then also use it as a jumping-off point to talk about some interesting things. Yeah, perhaps we could also contrast it with Storm of Steel because we've read two yeah. books about wars in the twentieth century in fairly close succession, and the books. It is interesting, super interesting, where the books are similar and where they differ because they're quite different books and quite different conflicts as well. Because while Storm of Steel, quite different authors too, very different authors. <laughs> While Storm of Steel you was the complete nutcase, yeah, Storm of Steel was interesting because it achieved this strange monotony 
this monotony of horror where there was very little light and dark or little contrast in terms of what was described. It was basically being continuously shelled, having people around him continuously dying, continuously being shot at, continuously shooting people, continuously being in just absolutely awful conditions in trench warfare and explaining it all in very detached, quite cold terms, as opposed to Minor of Trouble, which is a much more conventional novel or conventional I suppose, memoir of at least part of this man's life, in that this book has more, almost more topology. It's more varied in that there are moments of calm, moments of build-up, moments of, especially when he's talking about fighting, there, there are a lot of moments of action. So it's a more varied book. It's much less detached, much less cold than Storm of Steel, and also by nature of the conflict. There are, there are many more moments when he's behind the lines, he's relaxing and talking to foreign journalists or people whom he knows rather than Ernst Junger's experience where he's he's just getting bombed continuously for years, just nonstop bombing. Also uh, punctuated by humour as well. Yeah, this is much funnier. He had a really good sense of humour. Yeah, very dry humour. Whereas Ernst Junger, I don't know if he had yeah, very, a sense of humour. Yeah, very British. Granted, Storm of Steel isn't the yeah. place to find out about someone's sense of humour because it's such an inhuman <laughs> book. Something like humour wouldn't really come into the equation. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. it was interesting reading these books close together. It was also interesting reading this book in that the accounts of the Spanish Civil War that I have read, and it does seem most, at least, English language literature pertaining to the Spanish Civil War has been written by people who fought for the Republicans. So, for example, Homage to Catalonia is one of the more famous accounts in English where Orwell was, was he fighting for the POUM or the FAI? Was he fighting for the Trotskyists or for the Anarchists? I forget. For, for one of the groups that ended, ended up being exterminated by the Stalinists. So it's interesting reading an account. Yeah, POUM. Which isn't, which isn't from the International Brigades. Because I find those, the accounts from the International Brigades, Homage to Catalonia didn't do so, so much because they also got screwed over by Moscow. But many of those accounts do tend to understate the extent to which Moscow was, or the influence that Moscow had on the Republican movement in Spain, and also understate the atrocities committed by that side in the conflict. So it's interesting reading an account yeah. by someone fighting for the nationalists who's inclined to discount the atrocities committed by the nationalists. He blamed he blamed <laughs> the Republicans for Guernica, says that they probably burned down the town when they were retreating. The fact that it was bombed by the Nazi Condor Legion was just incidental. I'm sure it was a smoldering yeah. pile yeah, yeah. before they bombed it to, to smithereens. <laughs> so um, it is interesting yeah, so reading it from that perspective as well. At a, at a high level, for people who don't know much about the Spanish Civil War, it was fought between a coalition on both sides, but roughly speaking, you can think of it as the nationalists who were essentially, they were the group that ended up 
winning and also that's mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Franco, the eventual dictator of Spain, um, was f- like ascended through one of the and we can talk more about the details, but essentially ascended through the ranks mm. of one of the uh, one of the factions of the nationalists. Whereas on the other side, they're called the Republicans in the book and historically, but essentially they were the communists. Um, so just before the Civil War broke out, there was the Spanish Republic for like seven or eight years. Um, it was like from 30 or 31 to like 39, something like that. And then it basically deteriorated, the political situation deteriorated and um, a civil war began uh, between the Nationalists mm. and the Republicans. Yeah, the, the civil war started in 36 after a right. coup led by, led by members of the military, particularly led by it was General Emilio Moa and Franco. So Spain was extremely politically febrile up until that point. At the time of the coup, there was a left-wing government currently in control, although power had been shifting between the left and right during the 1930s. And essentially, the side or the political side that wasn't in power at the time would, in the case of the left, launch a bunch of violent strikes and take over. For example, in Asturias, the miners basically just took over the whole region violently, burned down churches, shot landowners. And then when the right wasn't in power, they would also throw tantrums and start trying to take, take power. And in 36, the right wasn't in power and so launched a coup which wasn't as decisive as they had hoped. They were hoping to be able to take over the country in a matter of days, but also wasn't the complete fiasco that it's portrayed as more by... Republican or Republican sympathetic sources. It's also interesting to note the makeup of the two sides because at least the way the conflict had been portrayed to me was that it was a fight between communism and fascism. Whereas in reality, most of the nationalists, particularly at the start of the war, were conservatives or monarchists or Catholics. Yeah. Yeah, traditionalists. And while... Yeah, and... The fascists were a, sm- a quite a small part of that coalition and weren't very highly regarded because they were regarded as poor fighters and more interested in political machinations than in actually fighting the Republicans. And in the end, those political machinations ended up being what helped get them power in that they slowly became more and more influential within the nationalist movement. Also, as... As leaders of the nationalist movement, like Mola, who died in a plane crash, st- who weren't fascists, started dying, the fascists became relatively more, more important. On the Republican side, there were, it was a coalition of liberals, particularly in the beginning, the liberals were not in the driver's seat, but more prominent than particularly they were at the end of the war. Communists, particularly those backed by the, the Communist International from the Soviet Union. You also had, you had Trotskyists, whom the, the Soviet Union liked a lot less, like the POUM, who got purged. You had anarchists, who also got purged by the, the Soviet-backed fighters. And then, interestingly, you had groups like Basque nationalists, who were, who were very Catholic, 
and anti-Catholicism was quite a prominent feature of the Republican movement. And in Republican-held areas, you tended to have churches being blown up, clergy shot. The Basques didn't like that, but felt that they were more likely to get some degree of autonomy from the Republicans than from the Nationalists. And so their status within this further complicates it. So it's, it's a really interesting conflict and reducing it to uh, it was communism versus fascism or it was national independence versus totalitarianism or it was Catholic traditionalism versus atheism are all dimensionality reductions that don't really explain the complexity of this conflict. Yeah, the complexity and the level of like internal disagreements between the yeah. sides. Yeah. Like, as Jack already mentioned, for example, the Republicans had a number of purgings and infightings. This is pretty, like, typical of, like, the communist yeah. thing. They had a civil war within century. a civil war. Within, yeah. for example, Madrid. <laughs> and within Catalonia. So in, in Homage to Catalonia by Orwell, he in, in parts describes this civil war within a civil war where you had the communist international-backed international brigades fighting against the POUM and FAI, the Trotskyist and the anarchist parts of the, of the Republicans, while also fighting off the nationalists. And that, that was probably one of the major contributing factors as to why the nationalists won. The, the, the nationalists lost, yeah. weren't spending <laughs> similar amounts of time killing each other as killing the Republicans. Even though within the nationalist movement, yeah. for example, the Carlists, who were these, it depends how you define traditionalists, but effectively the Carlists were this group formed in the 19th century who I think they disagreed with the Alphonsists over which branch of the, I think the Bourbon royal family should be ruling Spain. So they were, they were monarchists and very traditional and they were notionally, or they, they were fighting on the same side as fascists who, were, who didn't want a monarchy, who wanted an absolute state, who, would, who didn't trust the church. They're just, like, just not remotely similar ideological groups, but they were smashed together in the same side. And also eventually the... So you, you had various parties representing, for example, the Carlists and the, the fascists. The fascists were represented by the, I think it's pronounced Falange. I don't know, don't speak Spanish. But these, these were smashed together into the one party, I think in 37. And Kemp, the author, does note that this just, this makes sense from a, from a wartime perspective or from an administrative perspective, but from an ideological perspective, these are just two completely different worldviews and don't belong together. It's a it's a really complex conflict. Yeah, needless to say, it's not just communist versus fascist. Yeah, yeah. It is also interesting. You noted it earlier, the the viciousness of the conflict because the the two not the two broad sides facing off against each other had been over years and years and years coming to hate each other more and more. It was a, a strongly ideological conflict and really vicious. So prisoners on both sides tended to get shot because people on both sides had the experience of knowing people or having loved ones who'd been killed by the opposite side when they'd come into their village 
and started purging people they felt to be disloyal. It was a, a really vicious conflict. And then to, to just pour petrol on the fire, you had foreigners joining the conflict on one of the sides to fight for an ideology. So you had the international brigades who were organised by the Communist International from Moscow to come in and fight for the Republicans. And naturally, they weren't well-liked by Spaniards on the, on the <laughs> nationalist side. They were seen as foreigners coming in and interfering and fighting in a country that, that, that had nothing to do with them. Similarly, you had, you had the, particularly the Italians and the Germans sent in, the, the Italians sent in a lot of troops and material. The Germans sent in fewer troops, although they sent in the Condor Legion and contributed a lot to the Air Force and a lot of material. And they were also seen by the Republicans as, as like just foreign soldiers interfering in Spain. And in, in the case of the Italians and the Germans, actual fascists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, they would kind of just have the policy of if we take any prisoners and they're, like, not Spanish, we'll just If they're foreign, kill them. you kill them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if they're foreign, you just kill them straight away because they shouldn't be here anyways fighting this war. <laughs> so, it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty brutal. It was really brutal. When we're talking about specific parts of the book, that was the part... There's a particular part where Kemp is asked to execute an Irish soldier who'd an been Irish fighting fella. for the Republicans. Yeah, and that was, at least in his telling, the, the part of the war that shook him up the most and that he found the most upsetting. And he was commanded to do the shooting, right, by his, by his commanding officer. Said, you have, yeah. to, you have to do it. And yeah, and the commanding officer sent um, people behind him to shoot him if he didn't do it. Yeah. As an Englishman. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. What about we run through a... We won't do a blow-by-blow blow account, but roughly what happens in this book, because this guy's story is interesting. This <laughs> guy was, a, was kind of crazy. like Junger, not to the same extent... Not to the same extent as Junger, like Junger was straight up completely fucking unhinged. Not to nearly. This guy the struck same me extent. more as Junger like, was a fucking maniac. Yeah, this guy was more like a kid who sort of had some romantic ideas and was definitely mm. on the like, you know, upper one or two percentile of like risk taking for sure. But <laughs> a little bit, I a little bit like romantic, wanted to get some adventure, wanted to see the world, mm. and mm. had just finished university and whatever, and was going to have an adventure, and it really shook him. Whereas like. Junger was like all for it, <laughs> man. He was he was all about that that wartime hellscape. I would say so. This guy is identifiably human, whereas Junger is just the German Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> and also, they both escape escape death a number of times. Junger was Rich Piana before Rich Piana. He just left humanity behind. <laughs> <laughs> they both escape death very. Very closely, a number of times. Mm. Junger's definitely a bit crazy. His stories, if you take him for his word, which I will, um, I will, yeah. He, yeah, he's like, he's like invent invincible. I would, um, yeah. the The difference is <laughs> in this book. There are this guy there got are, shot a number of. There times are a few though, moments so. where you think, "Wow, this guy is brave." He's been through some life threatening situations. Yep. He's come really close to death. That's that's wild. Whereas with Storm of Steel, you think this is just incomprehensible. 
I, I just I have no idea. Just like actively soliciting survive. Your own death. It was like, yeah, kill me, please, please kill me. I'm trying to get killed. Blow me up, please. Shoot me, please. Do something to me. Yeah, it's like, but okay, you I just, just had God mode on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The book starts in the prologue. He gives an idea of how febrile Europe was in 1936, the year that the Spanish Civil War started. Although he notes that nobody yet believed that another world war was inevitable. And he goes through the various events around Europe. How Germany was being ruled by Hitler, but was seen as internally stable. France was weakened and ruled by the succession of ineffective governments and was seen as a bit of a powder keg and a bit of a basket case. Italy, also ruled by fascists, had been able to invade Ethiopia against the French and the British's wishes, and sanctions didn't deter the Italians. There was this feeling that liberal countries were really on the back foot, that the communist and the fascist countries were, were on the advance. And when you read, for example, political commentary or political philosophy from this time, there very much is that sense that these totalitarian ideologies represent the future that liberalism simply can't compete with them. And in 36, it, it did seem that way, at least in Europe. Spain was seen as extremely unstable and probably going towards civil war. It was seen that as, as this place that could not continue the way it was going. And that was one of the reasons behind why the nationalists launched their military coup that they felt that Spain was falling to pieces, was being governed terribly, and was being delivered to Moscow and would become communist under the, the current government. I'm sure there are also self-serving reasons at play. To be I'm fair, sure I'm sure yeah. General Moller also yeah. wanted to just rule <laughs> over Spain. That that is always part of it, but one of the formal reasons given as to why they they attacked their own government was was the things I, I outlined It was one before. of those um, beautiful alignments of circumstance and mm. personal motivation. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose in that case. <laughs> like, yes, we're getting to be handed over to Moscow and I want to be the dictator. What do you know? <laughs> yeah, I want to make fat It stacks. wasn't like they're like, we really think that this the communists are like compromising the functioning democracy and we would like to remove them and then restore the democracy. It was like, no, 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 no. Democracy is off the table now, fellas. <laughs> no, you have to delete democracy as well. <laughs> Chapter one sets up Kemp's, Kemp's position. You know, he talks about Levi. I think you mentioned it before, how this guy had been, he'd been training to be a barrister and he'd, he'd been to Cambridge studying law. And he, he mentions it at Cambridge. He was too conservative for the conservative association there and so formed his own. Just wanted to keep moving to the right. And the, the fight for tradition so funny. on behalf of <laughs> the nationalists in Spain really spoke to him. And he, he does seem like the sort of person who likes to fight. Really inspired him. <laughs> Is that that kid who joined the Young Liberals? <laughs> He's a young liberal, dropped out of the young liberals and went and joined like... Yeah, and called them all just blue-pilled cuckolds <laughs> and formed his own red-blooded right-wing student body. You're all a bunch of socialists. 
<laughs> go, yeah. Go so that, would there be a similar thing that you could join this? Like, I don't know. Is there something going on at the moment that's similar? Probably not. There's probably nothing <laughs> analogous to what's going on right now. Yeah. Guy is crazy. Oh, go and join Azov or something like that in Ukraine. Is he? I don't know anything about Azov. Is he? Is he a fascist? Yes, Italian. <laughs> is, no. Is he neo Nazis? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. So imagine somebody drops out of the young liberals and then goes and fights for the Nazis in Ukraine. As of the as of battalion. Yeah, camp. yeah. But to, and it's interesting you know, too how he talks about how the the Republican cause was quite openly recruiting fighters in the UK, and the span the the nationalists were much quieter about it, and so. Of course, Kemp is is very biased in favour of the nationalists. But one of the recurring themes of this book is how the Republicans completely outperformed the nationalists in terms of foreign propaganda and being able to drum up support for their cause in foreign countries in Europe, particularly non-fascist countries. So I mean, I'm sure in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, they, they were much more sympathetic publicly to the nationalists. But at least in France or the UK, despite the fact that they at least were officially not aligned, the the Republican cause was allowed to op- to openly operate or op- operate much more openly than the nationalists. And Kemp brings us up regularly. And he does criticise the nationalists for things like not allowing foreign journalists nearly as much access and not not engaging with foreign journalists to nearly the same extent as the Republicans would. He said the Republicans handled their foreign journalists much more effectively and made the journalists feel much more sympathetic to the Republicans. Well, yeah. Also, there was a propaganda engine for for the like this international propaganda engine that they were like pretty happy to to feed uh, feed international mm. press. Yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, obviously the nationalists had their own propaganda as well, but they did. Yeah. On the Republican side, they did have political commissars from the Soviet Union at most levels of organisation, so that it was well coordinated with the Soviet Union. So he he talks about how he he met with people to transport him into Spain on the pretense of being a journalist. That's how he'd be led across the the border between France and Spain. And once he was in Spain. He tried to track someone down and ask him if he can please fight for the nationalists as someone who, uh, I should add, who doesn't speak Spanish. He learned Spanish in the course of the war, but he did not speak Spanish when he showed up. I'm very, I'm sure a very was, particular type of Which Spanish. was bold. <laughs> like he, he knows how to like ask for munitions and <laughs> stuff like that. Shout, shout <laughs> orders at people. <laughs> yeah. There's quite a poignant scene too where he... He's at the pier, which will where the boat that will take him to continental Europe will be setting off from, and his parents come out to say goodbye to him. And I think his his father wasn't completely opposed to him fighting for Spain, and gave him advice, offered to give him his rifle, which Kemp said no to because he said it'll be a bit hard to get past customs on the border. And a bit hard to convince the authorities yeah, that he um, wasn't going to fight if he had a rifle with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm a foreign journalist with this rifle here. <laughs> Just uh, taking this old, you know, I might need it. 
self-defense or whatever. Yeah. It's a war zone. It was an AR, <laughs> AR-15, coloured purple with anime titties all over it. Anime babes <laughs> on the stock. <laughs> nah, bro, self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that scene was really poignant because that was the last time he saw his father. So standing in the rain, looking stoic. His mother was very, very unhappy that he'd be going to fight. And he did, he met, I think there was a, there was a girl he was seeing in England, in London, and her dad had fought in the First World War. And she was, she seemed very excited that Kemp was going off to fight in the Spanish Civil War because he was telling everyone and saying, oh, it's going to be so cool. I'm going to go shoot some communists in Spain. It's going to be sick. He still has <laughs> He's talking about, I'm going to go shoot war. some fuckers. <laughs> Yeah, very romantic. Yeah, and she Not was taking into account like I'm going to get shot back at. No, no, you're the main character though. You just respawn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody else is an NPC in my game where I get to shoot everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how I operate on a day to day basis. <laughs> but her her dad heard about it and called him a fool and said that war is terrible. And this is this is the way in which. Mine Were of Trouble is a much more conventional wartime story than Storm of Steel in that most of these books, probably because this is a very, very common experience, tend to chart the course of the person telling the story initially having quite romantic notions of war, being excited about fighting, being excited about the adventure of it, becoming disillusioned as the story goes on, which is what happens here. Kemp doesn't... He's, he's not a fascist and he didn't trust the fascists and didn't like them. But at the end of the book, he was still quite positive about, about the nationalist cause, but certainly was a lot less romantic about fighting, about the, the mechanics of shooting at other human beings and getting shot at in return. Storm of Steel is highly unusual in that regard I- in that... In that he just, Ernst Jünger just doesn't seem to change in the course of the book. Like he's just, he's just the Terminator <laughs> from day one. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is a much more typical wartime book in that regard. I think what does a number on people is uh is is that oh what does a number on people and what probably for Kemp is the carnage of the machine guns. Yeah, it's like you can be romantic if you're thinking. I'm going to be a samurai and run into this field with my katana and my brothers at my side. And we're going to have, I think close quarters combat would still get be fucking disemboweled. Yeah. Get, get disemboweled. But at least it's kind of, it's pretty, it's pretty anime. It's pretty cool. Um, whereas like, if you're just like sitting in a turret and you're just mowing down bodies, you can't even like, you're not even close enough to like make out like the expression on their face when you blast it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to pieces it's just like a number of times a lot of what Kemp is reflecting on is essentially doing his job properly like he's sitting in a gun turret he's mowing people down and he's just reflecting on it like this is murder <laughs> like this is not fair <laughs> just, these, these, like they, these people are just running out into this field and we're just mowing them down and it's like, yeah, well, that's what you fucking yeah, signed that's up for, right. mate. <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> I think it's the, it's the first time he's really shooting at people in this book where he and other nationalists are along this high up ridge. And I think the Republicans launch an assault to try to take it, but it's really poorly coordinated. Really so they just have a bunch of riflemen they just like run out, run out in the open without artillery until, until they don't have tanks. Until, yeah, no artillery yeah, support. And they no just, tanks they just all cover. get shot. 
And then that, once they realize they're just getting mowed down, they run it, turn around, run back into the olive grove. And then they do that like two or three times. <laughs> like, they do it a couple yeah. of times. And then send out tanks. And then the tanks come along. Blown up because they don't have... They don't have infantry backing them up. Like I take this guy's word for it. I don't know anything about military. They tactics. just get shelled by this by the nationalist yeah. artillery. That is so it's like blown up. Yeah, there were definitely some moments and he where did, he did like not camp- feel good about that. As makes sense. Again, this is why I think he's much more identifiably human than Ernst Junger. It turns out he didn't actually like shooting people. Yeah, the guy didn't actually like when it actually came to the reality of. Oh, war means you go and shoot people. Like when he's talking to his girlfriend mm. at the beginning, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to be like a fighter or something. And doesn't actually think through. Oh, like when I shoot somebody with a machine gun and it blows their arm off, but it doesn't actually kill them, and I'm just going to watch them lay there maimed whilst I then go and have to shoot their other friends. While like, that's oh, not a particularly was, was positive experience. Father, father <laughs> Vicente or something. The that fucking insane yeah. priest. Because the nationalist yeah, units. So the nationalists were. Strongly Catholic, <laughs> and especially the the Carlos, which we like, which we ten, like, don't tended we, to have <laughs> tended to have priests with each unit. And there was this one guy; I think he was called Father Vicente. Vicente, have, yeah, Vicente. yeah, that's yeah. I I quote yeah, Vicente. Father Vicente loves the blood. Kill some. Comments. Father Vicente, in great spirits, dominated the gathering. He was the most fearless and the most bloodthirsty man I ever met in Spain. He would, I think, have made a better soldier than priest. Hola, Don Pedro, he shouted at me. So you've come to kill some reds. Congratulations. Be sure you kill plenty. The purple tassel of his beret swung in the candlelight. Santo Domingo frowned. Father Vicente, you always talk of killing. Such sentiments do not come well from a priest. The Reds may well be our enemies, but remember, they are Spaniards, and Spain will have need of men after the war. Of good men, yes, but good not men. of evil. Not evil. Of good men, repeated <laughs> Santo Domingo, and of evil men converted. I was fascinated, as the argument became heated, to see the roles of priest and soldier reversed, but I noticed that Father Vicente was alone among the party in his condemnation of all Reds as traitors who must be killed. <laughs> he was one of my favourite characters Because he pops up a few times in the book And so Being a priest yeah. he doesn't carry a gun And doesn't shoot at Republicans But instead whenever Kemp is Trying to like it at For a while in the book Kemp is Commanding a machine gun I don't know a platoon or I'm not sure what the specific Military term for this group of people is but A group of people who use machine guns and so he'll be trying to command them and then Father Vicente will appear and start like screaming <laughs> at him to shoot some, people and pointing people at going, kill him, running kill commentary. him! <laughs> while, while also preaching the good book. <laughs> it's it's a, like a, a backseat driver, except it's war. <laughs> it's like, turn left, turn yeah. left and shoot him, shoot him, shoot that motherfucker. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, in, that's in the so section cool. you brought up earlier... Where they're defending that ridge from the the really really poorly coordinated Republican assault. When when the infantry's morale has just been completely broken and they're running away, Father Vicente is like pointing at particular stragglers, like telling people quickly, quickly, <laughs> shoot him, shoot him. <laughs> and it's like Kemp is actually like yeah, and having this like old Catholic bloodthirsty priest 
yelling at me in my ear whilst I'm trying to take aim actually threw off my aim and I wasn't able I to kept like missing my shots. <laughs> kept missing it whilst he was shouting <laughs> at me. <laughs> oh, you know what it's like? It's like um, it's like a, it's like um, you know those soccer mums that like get over like way too into it and they're like or like in America or whatever like football. Yeah, Football yeah. Parents, like yelling from the sideline at the kids, throw the fucking ball. <laughs> it's yep. like that, except it's except it's shooting down Oz kick, screaming at their six-year-old yeah, to really yeah. go hard at the ball or something like that. Hit him, hit him, fucking hit him. <laughs> go on, Cooper, smash him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I think <laughs> he was one of the funnier characters as well because the other thing is like he never uh, wait. I can't remember him like getting shot or anything. It's just like he's just some cooked fucking dude. No, I think he survives. Preaches the Bible, like eggs on the nationalists to kill the apparently communists, he would and then keep just walks away up above the trenches. <laughs> like, nothing and like that too. While just getting yeah. pelted with machine gun bullets and things like that, and he never got shot. He was protected. He by was the blessed. Power of he was blo- God. God. Uh, God had blessed him. The wrathful priest was blessed by yeah. the, the Almighty. <laughs> the hand he was of God definitely had a paladin built who put all of his stats into buffing the party and defense. He was. He Instead was of crazy one of HP pool. Really, really high armor. Vet- yeah, he, he was, was a literally. Paladin. A Spanish nationalist paladin who ran around just egging people on with his his ring of power <laughs> <laughs> on on he was and and just never got shot. Yeah, she was quite incredible. I would yeah. like to hear his account of the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> oh, holy shit! <laughs> See, at least Kemp Kemp will acknowledge that the nationalist did things that made him really uncomfortable, particularly when he <laughs> saw people people executing prisoners and things like that. He was. Yeah, really unsettled by that. And there's a really interesting part of the book that I'd like to talk about, where he try he confronts one of his superior officers about all of the times that he's seen them killing unarmed prisoners. But Father Vicente, I'm sure would have no <laughs> such crimes. Vicente. It's like, yeah, <laughs> looks looks like a commie. Shoot him. <laughs> yep. So much of this book is this is probably endemic to all wartime novels or wartime recollections a lot of it is quite monotonous in that not not egregiously so because this is a very short book he doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome which is something i really like and it's not aggressively monotonous and i think in an intentional way as in the case of storm of steel but the structure of this book is basically kemp will say oh i so he get he gets accepted into the Carlist militias. I think they're called Requete. Something like that. Don't really know how to sp- pronounce Spanish words. He he first fights for them and gets posted in different parts of Spain. And he really wants to fight. He always feels disappointed when he's either behind the lines or he has to train and isn't shooting people or he's patrolling but not getting to shoot people. Or when he is closer to the Republican lines, he's not serving in a capacity of, for example, attacking those lines. He's more holding positions and getting shot at, which he doesn't feel as strongly for. The whole time, he's, just, he's really wanting to fight. Eventually, he transfers into the Spanish Foreign Legion. And he does this for a number of reasons. One is the prestige. So they're seen as the best fighters. They're seen as the best disciplined but they also see the most action. 
So they, they tend to get sent into the really, really gnarly battlefields. And he gets his wish. He, he does see combat. Also gets wounded pretty badly in quite the process of he sees quite a lot doing of combat. that. Yeah. One thing actually that breaks the monotony is when he sees foreigners who aren't combatants. And that is interesting. So there were... There were a lot of foreign it really journalists. Really, is like a uh, it's like a video game. Really, this guy actually life actually looks <laughs> like a video game because he has these like little uh, NPC interactions, side quests, and like, these re- re- these recurring characters. Really, really who well are, like, realized NPCs. Yeah, yeah, and and like it be like, oh yeah, I met you know this guy that I went to Cambridge with or whatever, and then we got bombed, and then like two days later, I found him again, and we were super happy to see each other. <laughs> 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 it felt like you could turn this book into a video game legitimately, and it would be an interesting the Spanish video game. Civil War video game. I'm sure that would not be controversial at all. Mine were of trouble. No, I think you could actually like. I think you legitimately could turn this into a video game. Mm. And it'd be really interesting. Like, oh, oh, I, uh, I mean, I'm sure you'd have to take out the rights with his estate, but it's a good story, and it, and yeah, it's got it enough action in it to like. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, so, I can I say one thing about his writing? He did a really good job of um, his kind of. I mean, obviously they're real people, but um, his character building of. The yeah, he brings them to life. Interacted with, like, he got a real sense. He got a real sense of like their personalities and um, yeah, and how insane some of them were. And he brings them to life with few words. Yeah, it's it's very it's very impressive. He's fantastic. He's a really fantastic writer. Yeah, he writes very nicely and very economically. He doesn't overstay his welcome at all, which I like. <laughs> Jack will keep on saying <laughs> yep. how much he likes. I will keep brevity. on saying it. <laughs> Don't write um, long books. I, I say this, and one of my big problems with writing is that I overstay my welcome. So I, I also say this from problem? a position like of, of being, being responsible for doing it, which might be part of the reason why I'm so sensitive when it when it comes to writers writing too much. It's like whoever said it apocryphally, it was either somebody or this other fucking person who's always quoted as saying something, is like, uh, I'm sorry uh, this letter is so long I didn't have time to write you. Oh, Mark one. Twain. Yeah, Mark Twain, apparently. apparently yeah, I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> yeah, uh, which I think perfectly sums up. Like, I, I've started writing again recently, like short little articles, and definitely it's so much easier to just write longer um less economical Mm -hmm. less Mm -hmm. structured it's much easier to write that than to sit down and go okay i'm gonna restrict myself to just a few paragraphs and try to really get across what i'm saying and make it punchy that's hard yeah i agree now be a good time to shill my own book as well coming out probably probably december we need to organise a time for, for Ed and Levi to read it and then all we'll record an episode together on it for extra shilling. <laughs> but shilling for Tower. In a few months, you'll all be able to enjoy me overwriting and me, Tower me breaking Jack. all of the things Insert that I complain him. about in other people's books. I'll be leaving myself open <laughs> to the criticism that I levy at other people who've published. <laughs> very exciting, very exciting. So um, one thing... That I did want to note about this particular book. <laughs> it's my favorite characters. You know what my favorite character was? You know who my favorite it's character was? It's not Father Vicente. 
That was not Father Vicente. He was the best. He's not Father Vicente. My favorite character was... the best character. I I love that No. My favorite character were the mules. (laughs) I loved the mules. Oh, the mules, yeah. (laughs) The the indestructible land in in perturbable. They just wouldn't give a shit. (laughs) They're, like, getting bombed and, like... He said, uh, like, five or six of the mules were, like, tied up to this tree and and it got blown up. And I went over to have a look and all the mules were there perfectly fine and seeming seemed as though they just weren't phased at all. But they just yeah, that's bombed. right. Yeah, the, didn't the tree get hit by an artillery shell yeah, and yeah, somehow yeah, yeah. the mules weren't hurt? <laughs> they just didn't care. And they were just still standing there. Like, they didn't run away or anything. And then there was another situation where they got bombed by, I think, if I understood what he was saying properly, they accidentally got bombed by their own by their own um oh that happened on a few occasions was this with the planes yeah the planes accidentally bombed yeah that was terrifying can you give a bit of context as to what happened there because that sounded really terrifying so it was it was later in the book it was like chapter seven or eight and it was like they were were launching a major assault against how do you pronounce that word ter telur or something um was that teruel yeah, Teruel. Um, I'm pretty sure that was the assault. And something happened like they got confused. There was some miscommunication. And basically there was this, a Spanish bomber that was being flanked by Spanish fighters for defense, like a formation to protect the bombers. Anyways, they got uh, bombed. That, so basically there's this big front of like multi-section multiple sections launching an assault on whatever the city was and where camp was it was like 500 people and they got strafed and bombed by their own by some nationalists came through bombed the shit out of them later camp found out that it killed killed like 150 people but Mm. the bombers turned around and came back for a second time and bombed them again (laughs) yeah bombed them twice and he describes he describes seeing them coming back and just feeling sick and knowing what's about to happen and that there's just nothing he could do all he could do is lie on the ground and hope he didn't get hit by a bomb from his own side he'd helped like get the like after the first bombing get the troops back together like it's like okay the medics are running around trying to help people and stuff and like people are trying okay what are we going to do and then they see them turn around and start coming back and everybody just just complete chaos erupts and it just starts running yeah. everywhere yeah, and he's fair, shouting fair enough. and he's just trying to shout at them like don't run everywhere just like get down get for cover and like get behind the mules or whatever because <laughs> the mules are indestructible <laughs> and, but at that point you've lost control like nobody's in control of that situation everybody's yeah. just running for fucking like for their life and they know they're about to get bombed um properly like properly fucking bombed like hit hit the target sort of bomb and uh Anyways, at the end of this, they have, say, like, five mules and a couple of them have been hurt or killed. And one of them's gotten away and they go looking for this mule that, that ran away during the bombing. They find it hanging out. They bring it back. It's got, like, a bit of shrapnel at its shoulder or whatever, so they take it out. And then it's just like... And then the mule's just okay. Just, like, it's just chilling it's like okay i just got hit by sh- bombed and like got a bit of shrapnel in my shoulder but, like <laughs> it was perfectly fine and they loaded it up and it was like for the next couple of days just walked around like yeah it's fine <laughs> like unless you have a direct hit on the mule and blow it up <laughs> i did like to when the when the mules were first introduced when the mules were first introduced <laughs> kemp notes that he and his fellow soldiers 
were a bit shitty because they were expecting vehicles, like yeah. motorized vehicles, <laughs> and they weren't well, happy at having yeah, to machines. deal with mules because they're they're animals, not cars. So they have <laughs> minds of their own, and they were annoyed about that. But very quickly learned that the mules are really OP and just can't be killed. <laughs> and, and then they came to really like the mules. And also the mules can get like, because I've got legs, right? Instead of wheels, um, yeah. they can, they can get over terrain easier than, than the, if they had um, motorbikes, uh, presumably motorbikes or something or small cars or whatever. So actually the mules turned out to be really helpful. And they're, yeah. and they're really do- docile and they'll just like, for the most part, after they've been broken in, we'll just like come along with you. <laughs> you can shell them stuff. and it's, it's all good. Yeah, and you can, you so can shell them and they'll, they'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, and so unless you get a direct hit, <laughs> you're <laughs> going to survive. <laughs> so I, I, fucking, I fucking loved it whenever he brought up the mules. Yeah, it's like zombies in a... Just there are so many games where there's the case where with zombies you you have to jib them or something like that or they just come back to life. It's kind of like that with mules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after reading this, I'm like, I want a mule. <laughs> these things, these things sound like good fucking animals. <laughs> You'll never be able to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one day when I retire to my little prepper farm somewhere in like rural New South mm. Wales, <laughs> or like the middle of the <laughs> desert, I'm going to take mules with me. <laughs> My bug out bag and my mule. <laughs> <laughs> what about how he how Kemp keeps moving between England and Spain? How on a few occasions he got leave to return yeah, to, to go England back for his dad. His dad was sick, and then his dad died. Yeah, his he got word that his dad was really sick and got very worried and wanted to come back home to England because he his dad apparently never complained of illness, and so the fact that he was bedridden. Was, was a really terrible sign. And his dad had died and his funeral had already occurred by the time Kemp was able to return. It is interesting ha- having that dimension of him returning to a country where things are operating normally and then leaving that place, crossing the border from France into Spain, which each time he returned got harder and harder to cross, to the point where the last time he returned, I think he walked up the, the unused tracks of a funicular railway, got shot at by guards mm. as he was running over the, the border and he was pretending to be a picnicker <laughs> um, <laughs> to get into Spain. The, the kid's fucking insane. It's like yeah, he could have just... Oh, he, he was like 20 or something too. He, he went back this. for more. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, going there once is insane. Well, it's because th- he promised one of, the, one of his superior officers that he would return. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think when he left to to see his father who who died before he got to England, he still hadn't seen combat to the level that would fulfill him. He wanted to see more fighting. Yeah. And so it was a combination of he promised one of his superior officers that if he were granted leave, he would return and he wanted to fight. Yeah. Uh he went to England twice, right? I'm pretty sure he went back twice throughout his- yeah england twice and then he went to um to gibraltar okay. once gibraltar. i think to see his brother yeah that's right um who also sounds a bit cooked <laughs> didn't get to see much much he's of not his as brother. crazy as peter no no but still pretty adventurous um yeah so 
and then I think by the time he saw the end of the war and the had to kill kill the Irish fella and saw the bomb. So he saw Guernica, right? Yeah, he did see Guernica after after it got. I don't think so he saw Guernica, but he know. heard about it. He saw he heard about it. He saw he saw another town that had been flamed or something. Um, yeah, some really good stories. Uh, heads up for people who want to go and see it, Guernica. The city um, was basically like, excuse me, the Spanish Civil War equivalent of like Dresden or whatever, just just completely just carpet bombed into the ground. And uh, Picasso did a famous, famous painting of it. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, it was a pretty brutal mm. war. So one yeah, of the interesting things that, that was that Basque, I think yeah. in thirty seven was bombed by the Condor Legion, which was and the Italians. The Italians and the, and the yeah, Germans I think the, the Condor Legion it. was it was a German legion which had both aircraft and and infantry. Yeah, and they they bombed Guernica, and a, quite a few civilians died. And in this book, Kemp says that it was probably the the Republicans who burned it down when they were running away, as they tended to. He says when they they left particular positions. Yeah, but so he blamed the Republicans bombed. in this book for Guernica, which bombed I, I don't think is the case. Either. I think there's there's quite a weight of historical evidence to suggest that it it actually was was the fascists who who levelled Guernica. Yeah, dropping high explosives from thirty thousand feet will tend to cause some damage as well. <laughs> yeah, you tend to notice yeah, it tends to have an effect. <laughs> yeah, and also like when you look at the pictures of Guernica, it's like is this is not a fire. This is like the entire No, town it was just definitely like blown completely up. blown to pieces. Yeah, it's been blown up. It hasn't been set on fire. Um yeah, so uh really interesting. One of the I wanted to make a note about one of the other interesting points that came up a lot. And I'm sure the nationalists had their moments of being competent as well. Obviously, this is one side story. But it just seemed like the Republicans, the coalition of socialists and, and Marxists and stuff backed by Russia, uh, they just seemed like fucking incompetent. Like, it just seemed like there were just m- many times where they just did really incompetent things. And... Um, I was thinking, like, how do you... There was even a story of, like, two two or three of the pe- people deserted from the from the opposing side and came over and wanted to... And Kemp never saw whether they were probably executed, but mm. was telling the story... They were, they were relaying to Kemp that it's like, oh, yeah, uh, we don't have any food and things really suck over there, basically. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah. how incompetent They could have been completely the, uh, disorganised and useless. And I think it also depends yeah. on which particular part of the, the Republicans you're talking about. So it yeah, apparently yeah, sure, the sure. the parts organised by the Soviet Union, the communists were well organised and were, were an effective fighting force. The anarchists, just by nature of anarchism, are not a good <laughs> military force because they fundamentally don't believe in hierarchy, which means you're fucking useless as, hierarchy. <laughs> as a combat unit. Hierarchy is a pretty hierarchy good is really useful in war. If you if you want to if you want a cohesive military, yeah. So they they tended to get steamrolled. 
Could you imagine going to like the like ADFA or something, like the Australian Defence Force Academy, or like go into military officer training and be like, "All right, well, you know, you know what's really hot in Silicon Valley right now? This uh flat, <laughs> flat hierarchy. Let's <laughs> like, have a flat self-organizing hierarchy. subunit. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? There's like uh, these different organizational structures that were tried out over the last like ten or twenty years by the tech sector, and Let's just say it doesn't seem as though any of them have really taken off as particularly useful. All of the tech companies seem to have just come back to just a hierarchical structure. They're like, nah, <laughs> hierarchies are pretty good for organising people. Except Valve. <laughs> Is Valve's Valve doing flat? well under Lord Gaben. It's still not delivering Half-Life 3 or Left 4 Dead 3. They're still smashing there's it with only, their flat hierarchy. There's, two, there's only two levels. There's... Gavin and everyone else. That's <laughs> <laughs> Lord Gavin and everyone else. <laughs> and my wallet every time a Steam sale rolls around. Is his name pronounced Gavin? I don't know. I've only ever seen like Gabe Newell spelt G-A-B-E-N. I don't know if it's Gaben or Gavin. I don't know. Gavin? Okay. Lord Gaben. <laughs> we should... Gabe, if you're listening, let us know how to pronounce your meme name. We really need to know. Lord... Gaben. Gaben? <laughs> yeah. Look at those pictures of him like he's God or something. <laughs> yeah. Gaben. He ended the Spanish Civil War by just raining down Steam discounts and everyone was too busy playing games on their PCs <laughs> to go out and fight. He Gavin. finished it overnight. He called the Steam the, the 1939 Steam sale to end all Steam sales. <laughs> That's so funny. If we ever make it one day... Okay, so shout out to everybody who listens to this podcast. Jack and I were talking about our dreams and aspirations. One of my dreams and aspirations, if this thing takes off... World would be domination. To, <laughs> world domination. Strongly inspired by The Stick of Truth, by which I fucking loved. I, haven't, I think it's two <laughs> Stick of Truths. I only played the first one, if there is more than one. I fucking love that game. And... Um, Okay, so one of my aspirations would be to be like, if we ever get this thing off the ground and have an audience and stuff, would be to like make a video game or at least try making a video game. I don't know, maybe it's it's really hard to make video games. I think, but you can like, make Doomwad. Uh, yeah, yeah, or maybe yeah, or just something, I don't know, something fun and interesting, um, based on the things that we've we've read. And I think like just a, a Peter Kemp, <laughs> just get banned like immediately. First person, first <laughs> first person shooter. <laughs> Would be really good. <laughs> it could be a stealth game where you're Valerie Solanus and you've got a box cutter and you have to creep around in the shadows and like <laughs> rip the throats out of men. Like uh, whenever like they, whenever they, so you, you'll have a group of men and you just have to wait until one of them gets gets split up from the group and you can use different techniques like catcall one of the men so that he runs away into a dark alleyway. That's fucking some great fresh idea. Puss, and then you just like decapitate him. While his friends aren't looking, I loved. Be I loved. Uh, Could be those, manhunt, except except by games. Valerie Solanas. Splinter Cell. I loved Splinter Cell. Did you ever play Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell? <laughs> Valerie Fuck. Solanas wearing the sand green Solanus. goggles. Yes, yeah, so fucking good. Oh my god, that would be so fucking fun. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Except all, all, <laughs> Valerie Solanas Splinter Cell, <laughs> and you, you've got like you've got like a cadre of groovy bitches that are like your intelligence cell backup, and they're like. 
you know, telling you how to take out whichever fucking male leader of the world. So maybe the game, the premise of the game would be you're Valerie Solanus and you've got like box cutters and shit and you've got to go around and take yeah. out all the like national leaders of like, <laughs> like the, different, the different countries around the world. Be the like that Gillies in the Mist and mission from, from Modern Warfare 1, except Valerie Solanus actually- is the person leading. Valerie Solanus is the person leading you, and you're you're a young groovy bitch acolyte trying to learn Valerie Solanus' <laughs> ways, and you're just moving through Pripyat, exterminating men. <laughs> and you occasionally that get to the, meet up with like... the someone needs to make this happen. Someone really needs to make this into a game with Angela Merkel and and and, and uh, Hillary Clinton and shit. They're all just behind the scenes, just trying to overthrow the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie Salatis is the point woman. <laughs> no, 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 no. Valerie Salatis is sent in. She's she is the the tip of the misandrist spear, being sent into to male zones to thin out the men on the ground. She's the Y chromosome deleter. If it's if it's if it's a game designed and built by men, but voice acted by women. I think that would really like throw people through a bit of a like a, po- a politically correct. No, it needs spin. to be voice acted by men as well. They just have to put on high voices. <laughs> yeah, just men pretending to be women, killing men. <laughs> this needs to be like ancient Greek theatre. There can be women represented, but yeah, they can't yeah, be yeah. represented by women. <laughs> It's like even the CGI is kind of mannish. <laughs> like a dude pretending to be Valerie Solanas in the game. You could have just used a female sprite, but you use a dude sprite. <laughs> you don't even use female sprites. You just use the same male sprite for every human character. <laughs> just give one of them long hair. Jack and Levi just putting on really high pitched voices. I'm Valerie Solanas. Yeah, let's kill some men. <laughs> and everyone's Australian. Because I can't do other accents. And everyone's Australian or Australian trying to put on like a New York accent. I, I, I would study a New York accent. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. That, that would be more, more authentic if, it's, if it sounds like Australians trying to do American accents. <laughs> I'm going, kill some men. I don't know. What the fuck? That's my best Jersey accent. Shout out to anybody from New Jersey. Yeah, shout out to the game developers listening right now who are going to make this into a make this reality. Valerie Solana Splinter Cell. We've got lots of good games. You guys can have that for free. We've got lots of good game ideas. We've Jack got lots of good ideas all day. Yeah, talking about about game ideas. So we're you know you can steal them. That's fine. Go make it. bring it into life. Bring it to life, and then let us know. Anyways, we should get back to you can have this one. We're <laughs> famous enough within the game development community. We can we can share some of this fame. <laughs> Okay, so what what were we talking about before we started talking about Valerie Solana's Splinter Cell? What about shooting prisoners? We can talk about shooting prisoners. <laughs> Valerie Solana. Valerie Solanas would definitely shoot her prisoners. One hundred percent she would shoot prisoners. I don't think she'd bat a fucking eyelid. Oh no way. Not not the men. I've got two quotes here about Kemp's Kemp's experience with shooting prisoners. Or he wasn't shooting them himself, not that he, he admitted to. They, he at this point was part of the Spanish Foreign Legion and they were advancing on Republican territory and having a lot of success. They were driving the Republicans back because by this point, the Nationalists had gotten their tactics down well. So they were coordinating 
artillery, air force, armor, and infantry quite effectively. So they, they would bomb a position with artillery, roll up tanks, or with, they'd bomb it with artillery and air force, the air force, they'd roll up a line of tanks and have infantry advancing behind the tanks. And so they got that coordination down and it was very, very effective. And the Republicans had a very hard time countering that. So they'd overrun Republican positions and had found there were a bunch of Republicans still alive. Um, so I quote, At that moment, Colonel Peña Redonda approached with Demora and two legionaries, escorting a prisoner, a lieutenant of Carabineros, who had surrendered after the last engagement. He was a stocky little man with dark curly hair, whom fear and exhaustion had made into a pathetic figure. The Carabineros, like the Guardia de Asalto, were especially detested by the nationalists. Few of their officers who were taken prisoner survived. Addressing Canthella, Demora said, The colonel wants some men to shoot this prisoner. There was a wild scramble around me as a dozen legionaries leaped to their feet, clamouring for the job with an eagerness surprising in men who a moment earlier had seemed exhausted. Even Peña Redonda was startled. Quiet, my children, quiet, he urged in a pained voice. There's nothing to get excited about. This is simply a creature who is about to pass over to the other side. His unctuous tone barely veiled his satisfaction. He turned to Demora. I think we'd better have an officer. Demora caught sight of Torres. Will you undertake it? He asked. Poor Torres, still suffering from his tonsils, turned a shade paler. When the prisoner had made his confession to our padre, Torres pulled himself together and, with obvious reluctance, approached the man. They spoke together for a moment. Then they walked slowly towards the edge of the escarpment, the escort following. The prisoner stood with his back to us on the top of the bluff, gazing across the shadowed valley to the further side where the slanting sunlight touched the hills with gold. Torres stepped back, drew his pistol and shot him once through the back of the head. So, the next quote I'll read is from a little bit of time later. So Kemp saw this. He then saw on the battlefield people executing prisoners... And he'd been wanting to ask his superior officer why this was happening, because it, it apparently wasn't official policy of the nationalists to do so. So I quote, When Kemp asks Kunthella, one of his superior officers, It was over lunch the next day that I nerved myself to ask Kunthella, Where do the orders come from that we must shoot all the prisoners of the international brigades? As far as we're concerned, from Colonel Peña Redonda. But we all think the same way ourselves. Look here, Peter, he went on with sudden vehemence. It's all very well for you to talk about international law and the rights of prisoners. You're not a Spaniard. You haven't seen your country devastated, your family and friends murdered in a civil war that would have ended 18 months ago, but for the intervention of foreigners. I know we have help now from Germans and Italians, but you know as well as I do that this war would have been over by the end of 1936, when we were at the gates of Madrid, but for the international brigades. At that time, we had no foreign help. What is it to us if they do have their ideals? Whether they know it or not, they are simply tools of the communists, and they have come to Spain to destroy our country. What do they care about the ruin they have made here? Why then should we bother about their lives when we catch them? It will take years to put right the harm they've done to Spain. He paused for breath and then went on. Another thing, I mean no offence to you per to you personally, Peter, but I believe that all Spaniards, even those fighting us, wish that this war could have been settled one way or another by Spaniards alone. 
We never wanted our country to become a battleground for foreign powers. What do you think would happen to you if you were taken prisoner by the Reds? You'd be lucky if they only shot you. I found that one of the most interesting parts of the book. This statement that the Spaniards, and I'm sure this wasn't the view of all of them, but perhaps by many of them, that they resented foreigners for coming and meddling in their war. And particularly for for extending the war that was destroying Spain. I found this one of the most compelling parts of the book, that monologue. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really, really important part of the book. The comparison between, I suppose, you know, like as listeners of the show would be aware, I have my criticisms of of nationalism and... You know, especially under World War One and World War Two, ideas of nationalism were at least part of the reason why so many millions of young men were slaughtered <laughs> for these these ideologies. Um, but what gave me pause about this, with regards to like a commentary on my own criticisms of nationalism, is that they were fighting in this particular instance. This person is talking about fighting for Spain against the encroachment of people who had no, like, connection with Spain and they were there purely ideologically. What I mean is the international brigades from the, you know, like this ideology, Mm. communism, had seeped out into other parts of the world from Ireland to France to wherever and based on this ideology that had nothing to do with the history, tradition, culture, political disagreements of Spain. They were there fighting not for the Spanish Republicans per se, but they were there because they were fighting for communism. And if you sort of think yep. about like yep. nationalism versus internationalism in terms of like, well, what's in what what ideology would compel somebody to fight on behalf of an in, quote unquote international grade? Well, there's really only one, and it's communism. You know, mm-hmm. like if you don't have that, maybe you need some traditional form of religion. But as far as I'm concerned, like communism is essentially a secular religion. So there's this secular religion that is like compelling people to go and fight other countries' civil wars on the side of, uh, you know, and taking sides in that civil war. Now, obviously, there were people like Kemp who fought for the nationalists, and there was the fascist Germans and Italians who assisted eventually. So, but like, I don't know, like, it gave me a lot of pause to think, like, okay. Well, where is the line? So you've got, in the case of Spain, you know, still a very diverse, culturally diverse, you know, you've got Basque and Catalonia and then you've got the Moors and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, the okay, Gallegos. But at the same time, and they had, they still had, like, they had, like, their regional autonomy and sense of, like, culture and different forms of Catholicism in particular. There are a lot of nationalists and traditionalists who are fighting to have that sense of, like, their country not just being, as they said, handed over to Moscow and then turned into, like, just another communist mm-hmm. satellite. That, I think, is really respectable and also really, like, yeah, it's it's a shame that it, Spain became a fascist state afterwards, but there were certainly a lot of nationalists who were essentially trying to, like, fight for their community, like, fight for their, you know, potentially hundreds, if not thousands of years of family history and connection to 
to the language and the culture of the region being threatened by a pretty dystopian and impersonal and deculturizing ideology in the form of like the international brigades bringing mm-hmm. communism into Spain. So definitely gave me a lot to think about. Yeah, which shows it throws into stark relief the truth behind nationalism because nationalism is not completely arbitrary in the same sense that yeah. the, the extent to which I care about people can be viewed as this series of concentric circles where at its centre will be me, my family, close friends, and then as you move out from that, I care less and less. So, for example, I care much more about my wife than I do someone, I'd say a friend versus the partner of a friend whom I might not know but who means a lot to my friend, to a stranger who's from my city, with whom I might share something if we've never met each other, to someone from my country whom I haven't met, but still will share some things, but fewer things than, say, with my friends or my family, all the way to someone from a culture which I know nothing about in a place that I've never been to. Nationalism does seem largely built upon that sense, that people closer to you share more with you and that you care more for them. And in that way, defending your nation from an internationalist ideology, which to an extent wishes to erase those things, I can understand. Yeah, and the communists definitely wanted to erase that stuff, for sure. Like, they did it, they did it even within Russia. Yeah, and not everyone fighting in the international brigades was a communist. While it was, it was organised yeah. by Moscow. But they did brand themselves quite cleverly in foreign countries. For example, they had the Abraham Lincoln Brigade recruiting from the United States, which was not as yeah. openly communist. So they, they were able to attract non-communists, but it was ultimately a communist endeavour. The, com- the communists are like really good at public relations. <laughs> very, very effective <laughs> propaganda. Very good um, at PR with a certain class of people particularly. Yeah. Like the, the the longer and the longer the amount of time you've spent at university, I think the more effectively they can propagandize <laughs> to you. So I find the uh, concentric circle model that you just described compelling, and I think that it's fairly understandable from a like a contemporary point of view from a country as diverse as Australia. It, it's somewhat harder to do that because we are a country that's filled with people from Italy and Spain and and Mauritius and mm-hmm. the, the indigenous populations and Anglo-Saxon Australians. So there's a lot of cultural and linguistic diversity in Australia, even if it is still an English-speaking country. And I, I would assume that the largest ethnic group, Anglo-Australians, would still be like more than 50% of Australia. But notwithstanding that, there's still a sense of people being Australian still people want to come to Australia and become Australian because it's a good country by and large. And whereas that's quite a bit different to like the sense of, I think, national identity that still a lot of Europeans have today, like say like being French is very distinct to being Czech. Like there's kind of like, I don't want to say Mm. it's, it's almost, it almost comes to me as an Australian, as an indigenous Australian as well. Like when I meet people from Europe, there's like a Czech personality or like a Czech personality versus French personality. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course there's going to be variation within that, but 
it it is striking how you can say like yeah that person's very french <laughs> or whatever and i wonder how much more that was the case at the beginning of last century where there's a very strong sense of like what it is to be spanish or catalan versus say like mm. russian back to the thing about australia though actually it's there is a certain i i see it as australian blindness to australian culture or the specificity of australian yeah. culture in that the f- the fact that you can have a diversity of races and cultures which are considered Australian is mm. act- that's not mm. culture neutral. That is a mm. distinct culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? And that of and of course, like, I mean, like, even if you wanted to immigrate to Australia and you came from like an Arabic culture or like an African culture or something, like, there would be a lot to adjust to. Um, there'd be he- yep. heaps to adjust to. Um, my, my friends and, and stuff who from immigrant backgrounds like describe all the time. <laughs> this, is, this is a lot to do with, yeah. with, with Australia. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but why am I talking about this? Oh yeah, because back in the th- back in the thirties, um, in Europe, well, I guess like a lot of the nationalist ideas were trying to draw these lines, cohesive lines around fairly large populations, maybe they're not as large as they are today, but still millions of people, like mm-hmm. German peoples and the Spanish peoples and the Slavic peoples and the French, right? Um, would it have been more like... It would have been easier to do it back then, whereas, like, Europe today is, like, you have the European Union, you have, like, the sense, at least in the West, of, like, pan-European... Uh, community i don't know like i haven't lived in europe like you're the one who's lived in europe so you can speak a lot i have just questions about it i'd say at least so my experience is much more in central and eastern europe i'm not really sure what it's like in western europe yeah i'd say among younger people there's an increasing sense of pan-european identity and that is an exclusive identity it's particularly as set in opposition to american culture which while it's still very very popular i get the sense that a greater number of people now regarded as a foreign culture to Europe. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely get that. <laughs> I speak to Europeans. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talk to my wife. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Use the Americanization of Europe as a degradation. <laughs> it's really not happy with mm. it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think that the concept of a nation state always seeks to present identity as simpler than it truly is because yeah to a large extent the legitimacy of a nation state depends upon a simplified sense of national identity yeah whereas ultimately a nation state it's an administrative apparatus that uses particular myths to to legitimize itself to legitimize its administration well can't you have a nation without a state i think you can have you can have a group of people who have a shared history a shared language and most importantly, feel themselves to be in some way connected to each other. In that sense, you can have a nation without a, a state. There's a coalition of, of peoples who say there's like the unrecognised, the union of unrecognised nations or something. And that includes like the Kurds. Mm. And I believe at some point, like Australian mm. Aboriginal people submitted to that coalition, like the unrecognised coalition of nations outside of the UN. So the Kurds, maybe even the Palestinians at some point might have been a part of that. I, I mean, go and look it up. 
And so, mm-hmm. like, there's these people who say that, like, well, we're a nation, but we don't have the administrative apparatus or, like, territorial claim to say that we've got, like, an, a nation state. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very murky. I don't know what, where the light is here. Because <laughs> even, even with Spain in the 1930s, which I guess just because part of it is we're far enough away from it in time that we're able, yeah, we're able to assemble a simplified narrative as to what happened and what was happening. Mm, mm. It might make it look like that that prospect of fighting for a nation was simpler than it might be now, but even then it wasn't so simple. So fighting for Spain, yeah, are you fighting for Castilian Spain or for Andalusia or are you fighting for Catalonia where there's a different the language Basque. or the Basque region where it's, it's a completely different language? At least, Cat- yeah. at least Catalan and Castilian Spanish are related languages. Basque is just like on <laughs> from another planet. Galicia, as well, has separate languages, a separate culture. It's e- even the administrative entity of Spain, the state, is not. It's it's so far from this homogenous entity. The same yeah. goes for all of Europe. It's it's much more complex than the administrative overlay placed upon it would suggest. Uh, well, the, I know from, from, world, really. playing, from playing hours and hours of uh, Europa Universalis that <laughs> Europe, including the Spanish, <laughs> have, have a very long and storied history of changing administrative regimes and interplaying with, with, the, uh, with the church and all this sort of stuff. So, yes, I'm quite aware. <laughs> yes, I, I, I learned from Crusader Kings too. <laughs> Most of Europe was built on incest, at least according to Crusader Kings. <laughs> incest and civil war and political intrigue. Yeah, no, it's really yeah. interesting. I so so. Anyways, back to the original point. And Crusader Kings Two is remarkably historically accurate. I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, yeah, back back to this book. <laughs> so what I found. Okay, so you're talking about. So I wanted to just take back to this idea of like uh, transnational ideologies that compel people Mm. to in particular compel people to war and it seems like one of them is communism Mm -hmm. which seems to have a lot of parallels i call it a secular religion in my head i think like there's certain types of ideologies that are secular religions um and communism is one of those uh another one that seems to be able to compel people is just like traditional forms of religion like i I don't know what you'd call them if they're non-secular religions. Like that sounds like so. Maybe I call them like um, like just traditional religions, um, which would be like Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like Christianity compelled people to like you know go on the Crusades, which you know potentially depending on which Crusade you're looking at, like had combatants from different empires or even people who like were more aligned to their religious beliefs. You know, they were Knights of the Templar. They were not so concerned about like fighting on behalf of like a particular British, like, English king or whatever. They were more concerned about fighting Mm -hmm. for the church. And so there's these, like, at a certain point of abstraction, you stop going from, like, thinking, okay, my family, my direct community, like, my immediate family, my extended family, my direct community, my linguistic group, and then it becomes... Like, even linguistic group is quite abstract. Unless you belong to a very small language group, that's only, like, a few hundred people where, like, the linguistic group is the community... But once you get to a linguistic group that's like thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of people, you're at a point where you're so abstract that it's like you're 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 really operating on the store on the level of like narratives. You have some like narrative that tells you that you're you've got some link with this other person, 
even if like mm-hmm. you really couldn't tell them from a bar of soap and you might have more in common mm-hmm. on a personal level with somebody from a totally different linguistic or cultural group. Um, but then there's some narratives which align with what we think of as nationalism and there's some like narrative structures or whatever you call them, like main plexes that like cut across that and they seem to like be able mm-hmm. to override the linguistic cultural nation ideas. Yeah. Of which liberalism is an extremely potent Liberal. One. A very potent one. Yeah, there's probably, absolutely. There's probably other it's ones. It's an extremely potent there's internationalist probably, ideology. There's probably ones as well around just like, like transhumanism, I imagine would, like I haven't, never really read a transhumanist political thing other than like that that fascist what was that that fascist one that we read recently the fascist transhumanist nazi one <laughs> um oh uh, the eonic futurist manifest yeah eonic futurism xenofeminism yeah, yeah. was was quite transhumanist yeah. insofar as tech technologically modified humans could transcend gender yeah yeah so it's interesting to see, I, I, you know, I felt sympathetic to, like, the idea that, okay, like, we're Spanish, we don't want these fucking, like, uh, these internationalists coming in and, like, meddling with our, you know, our country. Like, I found that very, mm-hmm. I don't know, sympathetic. I can understand why people felt that way. Yeah. And I can understand why people yeah, in a modern context, internationalist like, ideologies are used as, are used as cover for one nation dominating another. Oftentimes, I think the spread of liberalism internationally is almost invariably a way for the US to to fund its multi-decade, multi-trillion dollar project of assembling a society where wealth transfers occur from young people to old people. Yeah, and from the inter- and from the for the international community, I would agree with that. And I'd also my other criticism of them is that they've they've basically uh, conducted a five decade long theft from the rest of the world. They've exported their domestic inflation on the rest of the world by making the rest of the world use the petrodollar system with everybody else from non-US mm-hmm. countries have subsidised the US domestic inflation. That's why that's part of the reason why they're not experiencing as much inflation as they should be. Like, literally, if mm. the rest of the demand from reserve yeah. banks... And in, in, in return, we and, have culture war exported to us. We have culture war, and we have, a, we have just a, an abundance of US military bases, you know, compromising the national sovereignty of like all the other countries around them. You know, like I love the US in a lot of ways, but like the way that they've like basically fucked the rest of the world the last like especially since like the seventies is like pretty abhorrent. So like and they've definitely done it under the guise of like yeah, apparently fighting just wars in the Middle East, carpet bombing the fuck out of like poor mm. people. <laughs> you know, you like, what, what they're doing to gay people over there? <laughs> We've got to go kill it's them. Like, what a bunch of bullshit! It's like, and as somebody who likes them, so they respect women. <laughs> they they need to respect women at the at the tip of my bomb. <laughs> I'm gonna gonna carpet bomb them so they yeah, respect yeah. women. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach them to respect women. Yeah, you know those people who are literally living in caves. We better send over some a fucking a fucking Her- Hercules fucking chopper and just like snipe them from thirty thousand feet or whatever. <laughs> this fucking what a bunch of bullshit. Really give them a strong lesson in civil ethics. 
the US is such an interesting because I have a, I have trouble calling them an empire in the same way that you would call like I can see why people call them an empire, but like it's not the same. It's like it seems qualitatively different to like the colonial empires of Europe before the twentieth century. And I don't know what I would say how it's yeah it's, it's it's minimally invasive empire. I think a, a, a significant portion of it is also through American mass media, which is probably yeah. the most entertaining and effective form of propaganda we've yet seen. It's unreal how exciting American propaganda is. Well, it's the free market of propaganda, and it's not it's not just military <laughs> propaganda. It's very highly it's competitive. Cultural propaganda as well. Yeah, it's oh, it's incredible. Just the production values, like highly competitive environment for creating amazing propaganda. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> That's why I fully support the writers' strike in America. Is I, I want that shit to dry up. <laughs> yeah. So bringing this back to like the nationalism conversation, you see that, and like I feel a lot of sympathy for like the Spaniards, like not wanting the international um, brigades come in with their commie bullshit. But also, like I can also see a lot. I have a lot of sympathy for like say an Afghani, uh, like I don't know, like Muslim person who's like, why the fuck is the US carpet bombing us? Like, get the fuck... Like, I don't care for your yeah, ideas of liberalism. Your, your fucking liberalism. Like, fuck your democracy and fuck your liberalism. Like, we want to have this particular type of government based on our beliefs here in our country. And why, they, why the hell are you sending your drones over here to bomb us? You know, it's, mm. it's like... I, as much as I like liberalism... And this is why I think... This is where liberalism... Breaks the fuck down. So I was just going to say... This is where liberalism, or at least our instantiation of liberalism so boldly demonstrates itself to be an intervention, like a an internationalist interventionist ideology where the many of the justifications for invading countries like Afghanistan include, oh, well, wi- women there aren't allowed to go to school. And I think, okay, yeah, I think women should be able to go to school. I'm quite liberal in many of my beliefs. I don't think that we should be travelling around the world fucking killing people, though, so that... <laughs> So that people submit to my beliefs. Yeah, doesn't that seem like an internal contradiction, like inter- interventionism? And that that's where how how our liberalism operates is is shown indisputably to be an internationalist ideology. Internationalist interventionism through like with the yeah. at least with the affront with the with the affront of being liberal is like to me that seems so contradictory. It's like how can we love you say the public square and we're gonna forcibly how, open one up in your country? How can you force somebody to be free? How can you force somebody to have these values? Oh shoot them? Shoot them. Like okay, if, at that you point you're not liberal anymore. Bombs. If if you bomb the shit out. So I'm, I'm gonna stop ranting, I'll just go back to telling jokes. Yeah, <laughs> ha 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 bomb them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized it's like no because for me like it's 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 an interesting conversation because I think that it is good for people to be able to like have self autonomy like at an individual level at the level of families and small communities and and that sort of thing and that nationalism can really like lead to a lot of bad stuff as we saw in like the 20th century but at the same time if your form of liberalism the US it, it expansionism essentially like your form of liberalism just being used to justify going to other people's countries to force them to have your values is like not doesn't seem particularly consistent if you ask me yeah it's called buying advertising space in the marketplace of ideas when you forcibly remove the competing <laughs> ideas <laughs> highly effective. one way to get your message out there <laughs> it's pretty effective very very potent yeah. strategy 
if there aren't <laughs> brains that are running the software that you're because you've blown blown their brains out of their skull with like some carpet bombs yeah that's a pretty effective way to get rid of competing ideas <laughs> just what if we instead of getting rid of the ideas what if we just get rid of the physical bodies that are instantiating those ideas <laughs> we just yeah, exactly them. so if you hold if you hold the number of people holding your ideas steady but reduce the the number of people holding other ideas <laughs> then proportionally your ideas cover more of humanity yeah, I mean, it's technically. I think the maths would work out in your favor if you just keep up that that, that, <laughs> that uh, strategy. I guess it just it just depends. You can't disagree with my maths. <laughs> I guess if you, it's just a matter of financing your war. So I guess that's where the US like figured it out. They figured out that like if they just make everybody else use their fucking debased currency as as a reserve currency, then they can simultaneously steal from the rest of the world to fund the wars that they're conducting in the rest of the world. Mm, mm. I should probably I probably should preface this given that so many of our listeners are Americans. I do like American people. I, there are a lot of Americans. I just don't like your international it. policy. I, just, I really struggle with the international policy. Yeah, and this is kind of like Australia's done some fucking stupid shit as well like it's, you know like we've got our, our history oh, yeah. of like doing you know I mean essentially like we've gone along with the US a lot of the fucking time. So, you know, we're perfect. Pot call of kettle black, right, motherfuckers? We understand. But that's why I'm saying, if you're American, you know what the most fucking American thing is? Hard money and a free market. So convert your fucking fiat cuckoo <laughs> into a Bitcoin. <laughs> I was waiting for this to get to Bitcoin. Stop funding, stop funding your fucking political regime to, like, bomb the rest of the world and get on board with functional money, internet native fucking money. That's more fucking American than than blowing other people up, right? <laughs> anyway, well <laughs> In terms of plot points for the rest of this book, probably the other big plot point. Oh no, there are two I can think of. One's with the Irishman. So they find an Irish deserter from the International Brigade. So he gave himself up to nationalist patrols and had been brought to Kemp and Kemp was asked to interrogate him because Kemp speaks English natively and a lot of the Spanish fighters didn't speak English. So I quote, The man explained that he had been a seaman on a British ship trading to Valencia where he had gotten very drunk one night, missed his ship and been picked up by the police. The next thing he knew, he was in Albacete, impressed into the International Brigades. He knew that if he tried to escape in Republican Spain, he would certainly be retaken and shot. So he had so he had bided his time until he reached the front, when he had taken the first opportunity to desert. He had been wandering around for two days before he found our patrol. So Kemp wants to spare this guy's life. So he goes around telling several superiors of his that this man should be spared, that he'd been pressed into service on the Republican side, that he didn't want to fight. But apparently the official policy is to execute all foreigners. So he finds a colonel, and I quote, I found Colonel Peña Redonda sitting cross-legged with a plate of fried eggs on his knee. He greeted me amiably enough as I stepped forward and saluted. I had taken care to leave my prisoner well out of earshot. I repeated his story, adding my own plea at the end, as I had with Canthella and Demora. I have the fellow here, sir, I concluded, in case you wish to ask him any questions. The colonel did not look up from his plate. No, Peter, he said casually, his mouth full of egg. 
I don't want to ask him anything. Just take him away and shoot him. I was so astonished that my mouth dropped open. My heart seemed to stop beating. Peña Redonda looked up, his eyes full of hatred. Get out, he snarled. You heard what I said. As I withdrew, he shouted to me, I warn you, I intend to see that this order is carried out. Motioning the prisoner and escort to follow, I started down the hill. I would not walk with them, for I knew that he would question me and I could not bring myself to speak. I decided not to tell him until the last possible moment, so that at least he might be spared the agony of waiting. I even thought of telling him to make a break for it while I distracted the escort's attention. Then I remembered Peña Redonda's parting words and, looking back, saw a pair of legionaries following us at a distance. I was so numb with misery and anger that I didn't notice where I was going until I found myself in front of Demora once more. When I told him the news, he bit his lip. Then I'm afraid there's nothing we can do, he said gently. You'd better carry out the execution yourself. Someone has got to do it, and it will be easier for him to have a fellow countryman around. After all, he knows that you tried to save him. Try to get it over with quickly. It was almost more than I could bear to face the prisoner where he stood between my two runners. As I approached, they dropped back a few paces, leaving us alone. They were good men and understood what I was feeling. I forced myself to look at him. I am sure he knew what I was going to say. I've got to shoot you. A barely visible, oh my god, escaped him. Briefly, I told him how I'd tried to save him. I asked him if he wanted a priest or a few minutes by himself, and if there were any messages he wanted me to deliver. Nothing, he whispered. Please make it quick. That I can promise you. Turn around and start walking straight ahead. He held out his hand and looked me in the eyes, saying only thank you. God bless you, I murmured. As he turned his back and walked away, I said to my two runners, I beg you to aim true. He must not feel anything. They nodded and raised their rifles. I looked away. The two shots exploded simultaneously. So that seems to be the part of the story that that upset Peter Kemp the most. That's the part that, that really, really got to him. And that there's quite a build-up to that point in the book. Yeah, it probably had a particular effect on him because he was Irish, right? Mm, yeah. Irish and 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 also <clears throat> I guess like with a lot of the battle scenes it's pretty impersonal if you're shooting somebody from like 100 yards away yeah. with a machine gun you can bet like you're just using like a little needle to try to like aim a machine gun and there's just bombs and stuff going off everywhere it's going to be hard to have any sort of sense of connection to, to the person that you're sh- mm-hmm. mowing down right whereas in this particular instance he actually had the opportunity to have a brief but obviously touching uh, human connection with the person that he's about to kill. Yeah, yeah, it was much more personal. It seems like the job, the job in war is, is to the job of people who are running a war, from the politicians down to the commanders. One of their most important jobs is to make sure that the actual combatant soldiers don't feel any sort of connection. To the opposing side and it seems like say for example in world war mm-hmm. was it i think even it happened in um in uh junger junger's writing but definitely in other writings where there's been moments where so i don't know like at christmas eve being out the the british and the germans being able to have like dinner together or something like that <clears throat> 
is is it, it makes it harder for the for them to, to for them to fight one another <laughs> you know yeah um, <laughs> to go back to, to warring yeah, yeah you need to have people purely uh like ideologically driven to just uh ignore the reality that they're, that they're shooting other people <laughs> you know they have to they have to like put that out of their mind and abstractly just see them as like bodies that they have to like um stop with a bullet mm. and when that when that it's almost like mm. it's like a breaking the fourth wall like right now listener however you're doing out there and there whether you're lifting you're lifting you're cooking some food you're driving to work you're doing yeah, some imagine if, like you're doing some front if, squats the holy compound lift <laughs> the holy compound imagine if jack just like materialized jumped out of your phone with a rifle and shot you in the face imagine what that would be like <laughs> started doing some front squats with you <laughs> gave you a spot gave you a very intimate spot Come on, bro <laughs> yeah a little bit too close you feel like, stronger than you've ever felt before you just feel his dick brush against your back <laughs> as you're descending into the squat and you've put an extra 20 kilos on the bar and it just goes up so easily it's perfect <laughs> As he's We're going to monetize this service from behind. <laughs> this <is> Jack. <laughs> it's going to be it's a decentralized spotting service that you can access through an app, a subscription service. All you have to do guaranteed your lifts will go up. All you have to do is whisper "Book Club from Hell" three times in in, in front of a mirror in your gym. Book Club from Hell. Book Club from Hell. Book Club from Hell. And either Jack or I will materialize behind us. <laughs> you have to you have to scream subscribe to Book Club. Subscribe to the book club from hell on your podcast app of choice at the top of every rep and your lifts will go up. This is a guerrilla marketing strategy. Do it next time you're at the gym. If you can also actually just scream out uh, RSS, that'd be really good too. If you just memorize that one. Subscribe and like to the book club from hell. <laughs> Rate five stars. Yeah, every time you do a squat, <laughs> shout it out. No, 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 just squats, just anything. Just anything. Just literally anything. Not even lifting, just walking around. <laughs> With each step. Cooking a meal, petting a cat. Any muscle contraction. In your sleep. <laughs> Start screaming, subscribe to Book Club from Hell. <laughs> in bed next to your partner. Yeah, exactly. That'll be perfect. And if they wake up in a cold sweat, terrified, just stare into their eyes, say, subscribe and like. They better have subscribed. Rate five, Book Club from Hell, your favorite podcast, by the way. Yeah, so a very touching moment in the book. Quite chilling. Yeah, very, very chilling. And then the other probably major plot point is when Kemp got seriously injured. So there's there's a really intense battle scene where it looks like he's going to get killed. And it is interesting, actually, him describing that he becomes convinced that they're going to get killed. So Republicans are pushing in from all sides. They they outnumber Kemp and his nationalists by quite a lot. And he describes this intense feeling of calm coming over him as he's fighting them, of, I guess, just accepting that he's going to get killed. And I found that really interesting, that, that description of, of liberation. And then he survives that and is okay. But then shortly after, gets hit by a shell when he's behind the lines. And it shatters his jaw. He has bits of shards of metal stuck in his face and his, in his arm and things like that. And the people around him all think that he's going to die. And it takes a very, very long time to recover. And by the time he's recovered, the war is finished. That's fucking hardcore. That's hardcore. 
yeah. that's pretty fucking hardcore. That's like, that's like, he- that's level 10 hardcore. You just got shrapneled in the face. <laughs> You're going to get up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Brush it off like it's nothing. It's just a, yeah. <laughs> tis a flesh wound. <laughs> I mean, subsequently he was, a, he was a commando for the British in the Second World War. This guy clearly liked fighting. Getting blown to pieces by an artillery shell didn't yeah. deter him. He he wasn't full younger. He's definitely cut from the same cloth, though. He was definitely one of those crazy sorts of bitches. Definitely cut from the same cloth. I think younger was a few orders of magnitude more insane. <laughs> younger, younger is still the high point of insanity in terms of the people we've read. It's literally a, it's a Pareto distribution. So, like, to be number one means you're, like, ten times crazier than the number two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and Jung is definitely number one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is interesting though. So he does. He did seem to be acting from a similar impulse for adventure that Junger was. He described a feeling of being somewhat bored with his life, or there not being enough danger or excitement or adventure. And so Kemp went to join up in a war in a foreign country that didn't have anything to do with him, where people spoke a language that he didn't speak, so that he could feel this sense of adventure. To what extent do you think people in our society can feel that adventure without, for example, going to fight in a war or something like that? I think it's um, it's pretty hard to get that, isn't it? Like, war is pretty extreme. <laughs> war is definitely up there on the peak experience mm. scale. <laughs> like, people do all sorts of stuff, you know, obviously going travelling in dangerous countries, um, dangerous areas, taking heaps of drugs, <laughs> um, you know, riding motorcycles. There's lots mm. of ways to get your rocks off, hey. But war, <laughs> actually, you know, like yeah. you could go and fight in Ukraine, I suppose. And there are people who have gone, young men who have gone to fight in Ukraine. And people do, yeah, yeah. Did you did you mention in a conversation at one point that you met somebody on their way to the Ukraine front, or you had met people? Yeah, I've like, met people who've gone to fight there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what was your sense from they, the, tend they to all be men? vets who vets who all miss men, all vets. War, who couldn't? Or at least, like I've, I haven't. I don't know how representative the sample is, but people who miss, miss the meaning given by fighting, and miss the the relationships with people you fight beside, that civilian life felt meaningless. You're going to end up forming a very strong bond with people with whom you're sharing this incredibly traumatic survival experience with. Mm-hmm. So that's understandable. And the meaning of like, yeah, but to the, the thing that really struck me was the, the meaning dimension, which is understandable. Now it, in our society, at least in Western society, given that so much is so sanitized and so routine, it's very easy to feel completely meaningless. Yeah. And in war at, you know, at least in the descriptions of these people, there, there is intense meaning. It's terrifying and frequently sickening, but intensely meaningful. And I wonder to what extent that drive for, an, for adventure is a drive for meaning. Yeah. I, I always thought that Maslow's high... So I, well, one, I don't know if Maslow himself ever really meant it to be like some scientific, like, good explanation of things. It was just like a framework. I, I don't I think people have really taken that and run, really run with it. But um, anyways... Mm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the idea that, I don't know, like, especially meaning existential needs are at the top of this hierarchy after having fulfilled lower levels of the hierarchy, like food, sex, shelter. And, like, on, on some sort of, like, like brute sort of physiological level, I can see where he's coming from. 
But it also doesn't explain why people who have all the lower levels of their hierarchy fulfilled then mm. kill themselves. And it also doesn't explain why people who don't necessarily have those lower levels fulfilled might feel their life is meaningless or might seek meaning in something. Or why people can overcome extreme um, duress and like poverty or, you know, like internment camps like uh, Victor Frankl's book about mm-hmm. internment camps and that sort of thing. Like, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I think that like, the, you know, if as a human, as a person, I... If you don't, if you're really like devoid of meaning in your life, even if you have those other things filled, in the worst case situations, you might end your life voluntarily. Um, and even if you don't, you can sort of just like float through the world like a like an apparition, not really engaging with life, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. on a material level you might have those things, those lower level needs fulfilled. Whereas People who find a lot of meaning in whatever it is, whether it's their religion or war or their career, building a company or writing, creating art, they seem to be able to withstand the vicissitudes of the material world. And definitely the call to adventure, Mm -hmm. especially for younger people, absolutely gives people that, uh, that existential fuel to overcome the material shortages that they face. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to find it though. And it is interesting how the relationship to the more mundane world is transformed and not not homogeneously by an experience as intense as war because you hear stories about for example World War 2 veterans coming home and some of them not being able to adapt to civilian life and feeling that everything is meaningless after yeah. the peak experience of the war. Yeah. But then there are others who return home for whom mowing the lawn on Sunday attains this transcendent meaning, this cosmic significance because of yeah. what they've been through to get to that point. So it's yeah, also, it's so it. variable. So I think Jack and I had a conversation about meaning the other week. We uh, didn't record it, unfortunately. But I think that meaning making is like a creative act or at least my current understanding or my current hypothesis is that meaning is is not like a passive thing that you just like receive but even if you're taking it from like a book like the bible or like a an ideology you still have there's still a creative element where the person who's experiencing the meaning has to like basically conjecture that oh this way of living is meaningful according to like these precepts of this religion or this this way of seeing the world this worldview and so within that like the as in, like, essentially what I'm saying is that um, creativity is a first-class citizen in meaning-making for humans. And so because creativity, essentially by definition, can't be algorithmically and determinately and predictively circumscribed then and prescribed, mm. then like two people could take essentially the same stimulus such as participating in a war and coming home and through their own creative interactions with their experience come to extremely different outcomes on that front like the the vets who 
mm-hmm. find no mm-hmm. meaning in civilian lives and the ones who find intense meaning. And it's because they've reinterpreted the same qualia, let's say, like the same sequence of like seeing this horrific event, seeing this horrific event, seeing this experience, talking to these people about this ideology or whatever, and then they come home and they've interpreted that sequence of qualia very differently. And it's that interpretive creativity that has shaped their uh, ability to find meaning in their life after war. Yeah. And in that in that sense, reading books like Storm of Steel or Minor of Trouble is really, really interesting because you do see different people's responses to those sort of extreme events. Events yeah. that I haven't lived through. I don't have the experience of living through war or being a combatant. Yeah. People need a sense of adventure. Most people need a sense of adventure. But that adventure doesn't have to come through. Mm. Yeah through like something as extreme as war but i would even say that even something like having an affair (laughs) (laughs) having an affair or even you know people get it from like mountain bike riding Mm. those are things where it's like you're being dangerous in some capacity yeah to what extent do you think then feeling some sense of danger is important to human happiness i think it's important i I think that like you should probably Mm. if you especially if you feel that urge particularly strongly you should try to exercise some self-awareness and put some bounds on it you know like for example doing martial arts training (laughs) doing martial arts training especially if you get into sparring can give you that or getting into mountain biking especially if you or skiing or surfing or diving you can get that sense but you know there's always people who will just be like they can't get enough of it and they'll always want to do like more and more dangerous things Mm -hmm. and you know obviously like they can do whatever they want with their own body but I would personally like, like I I try to get that stuff in, but then I try to modulate. Um, not you don't want to chase, you know, like you may slight you can form addictions to all sorts of things. Like it's not just chemicals that are addictive. All sorts of peak experiences can be addictive, mm. and addiction can ruin your life and kill you. So if you're chasing peak experiences, like on the one hand, sure, elite athletes can achieve amazing levels of performance perhaps because partially because they're chasing the glory chasing those experiences but unless you're like going out there to become an elite athlete Mm -hmm. or whatever it's like is it really worth it to try to constantly chase those peak experiences when like the rest of life is worth living you don't just have have peak experiences all the time yeah i guess it's a meaning problem that if you if you buck break yourself with peak experiences enough and the rest of life loses all meaning, <laughs> and that—that that is the source of meaning you find. I guess it's a—it's it, a problem that you might need to recontextualize things, yeah, to find meaning again in so non-peak so experiences. That's easier said than done. The trick is with like meditative practices is that whether it's something like vipassana or concentration meditation or whatever. Is that, and I I assume there's other things, not just like maybe yoga or something could do it, but like is actually um, learning to find, if not meaning, at least peace in every experience, even something as simple as like sitting on the floor. For me, as somebody like when I was younger, I was really into just like trying to find peak experiences, especially like, um, like as I've spoken about on this show, like drugs, like I went through a phase of just like being really into psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, not anymore. Not so. <laughs> it's been a while since I've done psychedelics. Um, uh, <laughs> but but just basically like not like what I realized for myself at least is that like 
you can make happiness and meaning in your life contingent on some condition. And as soon as you do that, you, you said like, in order to feel meaning or in order to feel happiness or fulfillment, I have to do this, this particular thing. And now you're on the hook. And if you can break that conditionality and just like be content sitting on the floor, looking at sensations of your breath or talking to a friend or sitting quietly with your spouse, like you realize that life is full of meaning moment to moment and the peak experiences can still be fun and great but it's a trap chasing those experiences and i think the call to adventure whilst meaning whilst whilst mm. important especially as you mature as an adult the thing is like if you're constantly chasing that you're just a you're like a fucking rodent who can't get enough cocaine water yeah the, the, the contrast is important but in that contrast it's important to be able to appreciate the moments between peak experiences rather than the meaningful content of your life being a few islands of peak experience surrounded by monotony. Yeah, because then otherwise, like, you're just admitting to yourself that most of your life isn't worthwhile. And it's really just, like, in the worst situation, you're, like, living, you know, like, the weekend life. Like, the people who work five days a week to live on the weekend, it's like, okay, so you're telling me that five-sevenths of your life you'd rather not be living? (laughs) Sounds like you Mm. fucked up somewhere Mm. along the way. You need to reassess things. Yeah, Great book. Lots to think about. So do you have more to say about Minor of Trouble? I I, th- yeah. I would encourage people to read it. I mean, it was super... It was He's a good writer and also just like learning yeah, about the Spanish Civil War, if you haven't learned about it, it's super interesting. I did not realise like how intense this... Like I didn't know, like, I'd never learned about the Spanish Civil War, but basically like it's really intense, really interesting. It has really inf- interesting implications for like World War Two, because uh, as far as I could see, it seems mm-hmm. as though like... The, how devastating the Spanish Civil War was meant that, like, on a practical level, like, they weren't really able to engage that much in World War Two. Whereas, like, maybe if, you know, like, the nationalists had actually seized power really quickly and been strong, maybe the Spanish would have been much more engaged in World War Two, perhaps. Um, but they were so... This war fuck, mm. fucked that country up real bad. So, yeah, it's really interesting. It's always nice to, like, learn about another country's history and, and stuff. And, um, yeah, great. I'd encourage people to read mm. it if they if they like historical accounts. I'd recommend this book as well. I'd recommend pairing it with another account of the Spanish Civil War, either one written by a Spaniard or one written by a foreigner, but one fighting for the international brigades. So Homage to Catalonia is one the most that one. doesn't provide a pro-Soviet account of the war. That, that one's quite anti-Soviet because it's from the perspective of someone fighting in a Trotskyist and an anarchist mm. militia. But it's it's it'd be good to pair it with something from the Republican perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, good book. Overall, great, great book. I'm glad that we read it. Thanks um to Corn on the Discord for suggesting it. It was a good suggestion, and I hope we did it Korn. justice by uh reading it. I hope you enjoyed the episode, mate. Um yeah, if you guys want to submit yeah. suggestions to the show, you can either do it by going to our Discord. Uh, which you can find a link on the book club from hell. No, not the, just bookclubfromhell.com, www.bookclubfromhell.com. You'll find all our links to uh, Twitter, Discord. The Discord link changes periodically because they have this stupid changey algorithm. It's fucking annoying. But I'll update the link there. And uh, I'll also be putting up a contact form on the website 
um, that contact form you can use to just like they'll email us directly so if you are not a discord sort of person it's not for you you can contact us through one of the other channels such as Twitter or through the website's contact form and submit recommendations um, or whatever or feedback if we'd love to hear your feedback uh, yeah mm-hmm. that's it that's from me anything from you from me Levi and I are both writing we're going to be shilling stuff that we've written a lot more in the future so keep an eye out for that yeah we'll try to balance the money maxing and the shilling we don't want it to to dominate but we'll find a balance (laughs) yeah thanks for listening (laughs) thanks for listening